This is the great dilemma of human nature that we have the we have the correct intuitions about the pathway that we need to take. We we lack the appropriate will to integrate them. We know that uh, the this, the continent of Africa, the people of Africa, deserve to be fed. Yet we lack the will to actually do it. Right. Like ever since COVID's erupted, I keep having these conversations with people where I say, you know, like how many people have died of hunger this year? Mm-hmm. And and uh, well, I think COVID just topped uh, what one million or something. But if we look at, I'm going to bring it up on Worldometers. We'll take it right from this moment. Right, okay. scroll down on world meters, and we look at the, the people who died of hunger today was seventeen thousand two hundred and seven. This year, as of Tuesday, November third, twenty twenty, thirteen twenty eight fifty four seconds, nine million four hundred and twenty two thousand nine hundred and six seven seven people. Someone just died of hunger. Yeah. And that does not include the people who die of the ancillary diseases arising from malnutrition that are all solvable. Welcome to part two. In this section, you will hear about ice cream, porn, the end of the world, and so much more. At this point in our story, we've reached the winter of 2020. By now, Radical Futures has been converted into a weekly seminar, composed of members of the Building 21 as well as larger McGill academic community. The seminars were guided discussions or lectures, and they explored a variety of themes, Alternatives to capitalism, the possibility and future of human agency, the future of biological sex, the effect of technology on representation, neuronal implants, the cognitive science of regimes of expectation, and the ideology of techno-optimism. Left with a densely varied quilt of content, I, as your narrator... I'm left with the task of finding a common through line that lends consistency to those last six months. What you're about to hear is that through line, or at least my attempt of one, narrated by myself but in true quilted fashion, interspliced with the thoughts of three frequent contributors to the seminar who were generous enough to lend their voice for this broadcast, David Javé Johnson, Amit Ben Eliahu, and Kondo Longri. Albert Camus said that the lot of philosophy may be the illustration of answers, but the lot of literature was the illustration of problems. In this sense, Radical Futures is a literary. If it has offered any sort of insight, in my eyes at least, it is in its grasping the dilemma honestly and providing a space in which individuals feel welcome to wrestle with it in their own terms. You cannot imagine new ways of imagining, so to speak, without committing a category error. The pedagogical consequence of this is that we must promote experimentation without any prefigured ambition, the mission, in so many words, of Building 21. The emotional consequence of this is that true, genuine change 
straddles a line between the terrifying and the sublime. Indeed, in his 2020 book of the same name, La Terreur et le Sublime, Olivier Dienz proposes that the near-infinite potentiality promised by technological innovation has produced an age characterized by these two intensely opposed emotions. We are afraid of the ocean's depths for the same reason we plumb its depths, after all. The seeming impotence of the Radical Features Project, its Achilles heel or absent center, so to speak, lies in the painfully obvious fact that it has not actually proposed any radical futures. But then, in some real sense, it is only by virtue of the fact that it is impossible to foresee radical futures that we might call them genuinely radical. Our notion of a radical future was quite similar to that of Kuhn's paradigm shift, a transition from one frame of reference to another, such that the very question the latter answers cannot be posed in the former. These frames of reference don't have to be abstract. They have names. They are, quite literally, our ancestors. I mean, in a sense, we're living in it now, you know? Like, this is the future my elders and ancestors built for me. So it's my ethical duty to take into account their trajectories and the roads they've built for me in a way that doesn't reduce to <clears throat> reduce their own experiences, even though I'm dissatisfied with this current state of being. Like, despite the fact that um, the, the world in which we live seems senseless, there is clear intention that um, underlied, I mean, my elders' projects, in a sense. So I'm very mindful to bear that in mind as I move through the world in their future. The dilemma is that our historicity is within us. We carry inside ourselves a profound past dependency, and that encodes a future that we encounter as a kind of horizon of imaginability. This is true from ourselves, who expect a future in which they stop replicating, to our bodies, which expect a future of walking but not flying. Is this not why, when we finally gain the ability of flight, that it was perceived by some as a violation of a divine order, that in rupturing the means by which reality presented itself, it was an inherent iconoclasm. To our conscious apprehension of the future, generated by the higher-level constraints of enculturation and state apparatuses, at every level, from organelles to institutions, our horizons of possibility are built up. To quote Umberto Eco, the past is constricting and blackmailing us, even as it is full of love, even as it is love, even as it makes up our world. It is for this reason that to truly undergo radical change, the very means by which we imagine must be altered. To 
move from the adjacent possible to an adjacent impossible is to engage in a paradoxically constructive yet apocalyptic action in which the world itself is, as Ed Finn put it, fissured. Walter Benjamin said that history flies up in a moment of danger, and to twist his words to our purposes, it is thus that the horizon of imaginability becomes real when it denies us the ability to imagine necessary alternatives. The danger lies in this necessity, in the fact that our finitude may not conform to the novel conditions necessary for our survival. An idea that's been very prominent for me is that people are messy and it just keeps showing up in absolutely everything uh, from, you know, personal relationships to, uh, you know, psychology to, uh, you know, international uh, relationships and uh, you know, business. Everywhere it shows up that, like, you know, things, there's kind of an order to things and things run more or less smoothly, which is a a huge testament to where we've come as, as a species. But generally speaking, just below the surface, it's always like a little bit up in the air. It is much less stable than, than I think it would feel like from the day to day. I guess my worry is mostly that some kind of um, ideological shift or some uh, shift in uh, circumstances that would uh, lead to to some kind of imbalance. There are all these kinds of things where it's more a case of I don't feel like there's going to be huge external disturbances. I think the the issue is going to be more how people are uh, adapting to to all kinds of uh, events and developments like technology stuff like that that impacts how we live day to day and how we organize ourselves. It's not that I don't trust people to do the optimal thing. Uh, I, I wouldn't expect them to. The concern is that, you know, with changing circumstances, uh, you know, changing uh, social circumstances, changing external circumstances, changing technological circumstances, uh, or ideology, or all these things, the, the concern is that um, you know, these mechanisms, they work in certain circumstances and, you know, people are going to behave how people behave for you know, all the reasons that To paraphrase French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan, there is no more unbearable thought than that the fundamental horizon of our lives, the totalizing frame of possibility, might simply have no limit. It is this unbearable notion, the lack of solidity of ground to our being, that we might detect under meditations on the unrelenting current of technology. 
its invasion into our minds and bodies in metal and flesh denies us even the most fundamental of constraints, the constraints that might produce a graspable being per se, a knowable body, a knowable mind, and so pushes us into an unbearable, undifferentiated fantasy of unmediated potentiality. Whether this unbearability is terrifying or exciting or sublime seems to depend on the mood. Here's the voice of Jave Johnson, the only man I know who speaks spontaneously as if he were reading poetry he hasn't written yet. Here, he offers a vision of the terrifying. Pretty much close to the end now. We're ravaging the final 4% of the wilderness that's left and uh, in the last 50 years, sort of the lifespan of my life. Um, we've we've uh, taken away 72% of the mammals and the insects and the, the birds. They're gone. The, the, the world that I ran through as a child is, is not even a memory for um, Generation Z. And their kids are going to face an even smaller percentage of this hypothetical pie if we continue to, to follow along what seems to be kind of an inexorable instinctual process. And in my talk for Radical Futures was about implants and underlying neurological research. So in a hypothetical dystopia where you have extractive impulses and dopamine scroll is just like candy. It's just a toy compared to the, the really primordial manipulation of a human being that will occur once we actualize both like a duplex communication with the reward center from an implant. And, but keeping this model of the other is not worthy, the other is not a self, and the other does not have agency. If we keep that model, if we all evolve as competitive small insects with uh, forgetting the correct view of this intersectional, interdependent, interconnected complex system, if we forget that, we are headed for, you know, typical chaos and destruction and then leave the planet bankrupt like a little vacant sphere. And there'll be, you know, a, a little cluster of audacious explorers traveling out, you know, seated in something on their porta potties held inside their HDMI with uh, the cryonic sleep occurring. And this will be in a space that's no bigger than an apartment, right? It's not going to be like the Star Trek Enterprise with swing doors and massive. It'll be small and unwieldy and tiresome and tedious. It's not a good place. If we destroy the forest, we destroy nature, and we destroy the rivers, it is a dystopia. If we destroy also the microbial life forms with this 99.9% germ efficiency of the, the COVID pandemic. Um, yeah, so that's the dystopia that causes me not anxiety, but sadness, like a lamentation that this, this extremely prolific, intensely, um, intensely competent and wildly creative species is going to squander its entire heritage on the basis of immediate interests. And all the evidence seems to be that, yes, we are willing to make that trade. It's a, it's a strange paradox of ourselves. We, we recognize that we are, you know, chain-smoking, um, alcoholic, binge-drinking, uh, lottery-addicted, uh, 
methadone freaks or, or, or you know, just crystal-headed meth freaks running off a cliff together. We're, this is civilization in miniature. This is what we're all doing. Every time we climb in a fossil fuel car, we're, we're, every time we open a crinkly little plastic packet, this is, this is part of the continuum that leads us inexorably to uh, a sadder future of brain implants designed to, you know, take a greater yield of our mind. So this is maybe the dystopia I worry about. And now he tells us what the sublime might feel like. The first instinctual little child um, answer inside my mind is like ice cream and porn, right? Like it's pure gratification, just absolute, just the, the pipeline is open, the implants are in, the, the lever for dopamine is just being uh, displaced and a real primordial gratification is just flooding the body whenever it wants. We know that this is an untenable future, but there's a kind and a part of all of us that I think aspires to the monotony of just being suffused in the inordinate pleasures of an orgasm forever, right? And at an intellectual level and having that done by a machine to us. Wow, that's what it would phenomenologically feel like. But I think that's a very immature vision. That's a very, uh, that's an untenable, unstable. Um, it's irreconcilable with the facts that we exist here on a small, tiny planet that has an ancient history. Billions of years, like 3.4 billion years ago, mitochondria crept into a cellular membrane. And then 50 billion, 60 billion, 100 billion, the multiverse, when was the Big Bang occurring? And out come the time threads, right, of these quantum fibrillations, this, this mapping of a, of a subordinate reality from which all of the phenomenological field of, of life and space and time, from which all of it emerges. All of it is emerges from this mysterious, this huge, great mystery that we're involved in. So a phenomenology of the future that I would prefer to evolve towards would be in the presence of that kind of um, spatial and temporal scale. It would exist in the presence of what, what kind of humility and acceptance that induces in us to recognize that our own lives are these just brief glints of light on a drop in a wave of a massive ocean and that the ocean itself is ephemeral that space and time themselves are a projection of some kind of matter and energy of which we only vaguely have premonitions of within abstruse formulas right now but it, it aspires to assimilate uh, a civilization i almost said simulation Right? It aspires to a civilization where people would be directly concerned with how do you phenomenologically feel as if you are part of the field of intelligence. The living, breathing, um, inexhaustible flow of boundless space. How do you build in the repertoire of tendencies and practices that act 
in harmony with our instinctual uh, heritage that is there, that don't try to do something beyond our capacity, but actively nourish the altruistic empathic roots of our body and try to diffuse that into the tiny, tiny smear of atmosphere that we inhabit. There is a thought also that bounced around the seminar and that worms at the back of the mind that clean drinking water is more radical than Mars rovers, that there is no future which is not built on tired backs, that the very cultural linguistic package of future discourse is itself a horizon of imaginability, one whose regime of attention fixates on cyborgs rather than the poor, one that might break on the dust and sweat and thin shoes of the world that labors to produce microchips and raspberry pies and copper wiring for quantum computers. Perhaps the very project of Radical Futures might benefit from turning its methodology of world fishering into itself. I mean, the future for me is itself such a political concept not everyone will get to access it because so so many disposable lives go into crafting it you know so when we use the we to reference um like where we are in relation to the future it's not a homogenous we um since some people within this we are considered more disposable than others yeah so when thinking about the future you should be very careful in using a we and really think about who on whose back is this future being generated and we talk often about just the the labor that goes into producing these techno futurist um gadgets um just like i mean it's common knowledge that iphones are produced um, using essentially slave labor and that the very architecture of the factories take into account workers' urges to um, jump off of buildings due to exhaustion and poor working conditions. The nets that stretch below the roofs are built into the design of the layout. So if, if that very um, ar architectural concern is baked into this factory, then we have to try to think about the broader invisible ones that are baked into the future in a sense. Sure. And what is it, what's, what's preventing us from living in a world where more of us consider the consequences of our actions and our implications in generating futures that we're not aware of? It's a great question. Um, I think what stops us is that, I mean, introspection is painful in a sense. Thinking about the times you hurt people is probably one of the most painful exercises you can do. Um, and like immediately, 
once a wounding has occurred, what happens is that this is distancing from the wound. The wound can be a person, the wound can be a people, the wound can be many things. And um, this act of distanciation is a selfish one, but it's one that's aimed to preserve your own sense of self. Um, so ki- that kind of like profound introspection into the, the hurt you've done and continue to do in a sense, whether it be like directly or indirectly via belonging to a particular nation or people or place is something that kind of entails the disintegration of the self, um, which is scary for a lot of people. But of course, like once that occurs, like it is possible to um, build a self that is kinder and gentler. Yeah, and that dialogue would be, I mean, world shattering in a sense, but I think the world needs to be shattered. What's radical is stopping this fixation on worlds of of gadgets and technological curiosities and um, focusing on human costs and critically re-examining that in a sense. In my years studying philosophy at McGill, the more counterintuitive philosophical concepts were made understandable through historical accounts that lent them context. Our Radical Future seminar, which took place in the winter of 2020, was interrupted by an event that presented as an inverse, an interruption so profound that it could only be lent context through the hasty deployment of conceptual equipment. That event was the COVID-19 epidemic. On the day lockdown was announced, my colleagues and I gathered in a common area of the office. There was an intimate awareness of the fact that history was occurring, a sense that real change was underway, precisely because events were happening which we did not yet possess the ability to delineate. Up until that point, our concern regarding historicity, at least in the context of this seminar, had been in the context of our inherited constraints. It had been internal and introspective. We had related to history in the way that we had related to ourselves. But now history was simply happening. It was a massive external force, an adjacent possible unfurling in real time. Of course, the biological possibility of a pandemic was predicted. But it seems to me, at least, that there was no way of imagining the months of sequestered Zoom meetings. Nothing in life prior to COVID could articulate the question of what life would be like during it. And, it seems, the very concept of a normal that we might return to is invented retroactively, only after the event of COVID-19 interrupts it. Before COVID, there was no normal we invent it in our hope for a return to it. The bitter irony of the pandemic interrupting so many futures, including my own, is that it fulfills the definition of futurity in its purest sense, as an unmitigated, unimaginable intrusion into our lived reality, 
as difference in of itself that alters our coordinates of orientation forever. And is this not in some sense what the Radical Futures Project had always asked for? A break in the horizon of imaginability, an injunction of pure potential, true futurity as such, so as to reinvigorate the variety of possible futures per se. And this, at least, seems undeniable. The COVID event has imbued in us thoughts that we would not have been able to have otherwise. We might end this broadcast with some wry optimism. The radical future seems to be inevitable, whether we like it or not. This show was written, recorded, and edited by Damien Arteca. The Radical Futures Project was invented and is still led by Dr. Olivier Dienz. Voices include Olivier Dienz, Javé Johnston, Kondo Longri, Amit Ben Eliahu, Rebecca Brasso, Dr. Ed Finn, Alexander Weinstein, and Dr. Jonathan Ledger. The episode was recorded and produced at Building 21. McGill University in Montreal, Canada.